Let us all turn together to the Word of God. As you can recollect, we're reading from Matthew's Gospel. The name Matthew comes from the Hebrew, meaning to give. So we think of Matthew's Gospel as a gift. Surely this is a very precious gift to consider at Christmas time. God's gracious gift. The Gospel of Matthew, given primary place in the New Testament scriptures, given for our edification, for our comfort, for our counsel. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word this day. We'd like to thank all in, our congreg- and all in the congregation for their kindness uh, to us personally. Some of you especially kind. And my heart is overwhelmed to speak of a multitude of cards and greetings for this Christmas season. Oftentimes with a little word on the side. And I want to thank you all for your kindness and your thoughtfulness, for your prayers especially. Let us read from this chapter, beginning at verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. Now The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, that knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Bless the Lord. Turn with me again, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. And just while you're finding the place again, can we wish you all God's richest blessing over the Christmas season, uh, today, tomorrow, and throughout the remainder of the week, God willing, and then we trust on into next year, 2024. May God bless you richly, individually, and with you in your homes and families as well. May God pour out a spirit of blessing. And can we thank you for your friendship and your fellowship, and your prayers, and your encouragement over the year that's gone by, and for your kindness to us individually and as a family over the Christmas season. Dr. Douglas has mentioned that already, and we can say amen to that. Your prayers, and your cards, and your kind words have been a real blessing to us, and we thank you so much for that. just want to look very simply this morning at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1 thinking about this name, Emmanuel. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Let's pray together and ask the Lord for his help and for his blessing as we consider his word together this morning. Let's pray. Loving God and everlasting Father, we thank thee, O God, again for the wonderful blessing that is ours of opening this precious book, God's holy word, reading it together and then even seeking thy face, praying that the very author of this book will speak into our hearts and lives. We thank you for the Savior that it speaks of, we thank Thee for this glorious chapter. The birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise. And Lord, as we consider afresh the, the reality and the historical truth of the coming of the Savior into this world, this world of ours, this world of sin, may our hearts be just filled with thanksgiving and praise and gladness we pray, O God, that you'll speak to our hearts, glorify the Son of God, grant the help of heaven, the infilling of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name that our Lord Jesus Christ will be uplifted in all of his saving fullness, and that our hearts might be melted, and we might each and every one be brought to his feet to worship, love, honor, serve, and obey him from this day forward until he comes or calls us home. Hear and answer prayer. We ask it with a single eye to thy glory, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. 
The birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is something that should truly thrill our hearts. We read in verse number 18 of Matthew chapter 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise. And that little statement seems somehow to set apart as being absolutely different and distinct from every other birth in the history of mankind, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the previous words, you have the great genealogy concerning Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and from Abraham right down through the generations up until Joseph, the husband of Mary, we come to the birth of Jesus Christ. But it seems to indicate in verse number 18 that his birth was distinct because he was born without a human father. And we read, therefore, in, in verse number 21, She, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shall call his name Jesus. And in verse number 23, that she shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. His birth was distinct. His life was distinct. His death was distinct. Everything about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is unique. He was God's eternal Son who stepped into this world of sin and woe. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Let us not flutter too high, but remain by the manger and the swaddling clothes of Christ, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I think any person who has a saving interest in Jesus Christ is greatly intrigued concerning his birth. Mr. Luther said, let us not flutter too high, but let's spend time around the manger. Let's consider the babe in the manger, the one in swaddling clothes, because in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That little child laying there in the manger was none other than the Lord of glory. Come, see the place where the Savior was born. Unto is born this day in the city of David, a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And over the last number of months, we have been studying the great Christophanies of the Old Testament. And the Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearing of the Son of God in human form. And in the Old Testament, we have noted those times never in the form of a man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to individuals like Hagar, Abraham, Jacob, Balaam, Joshua, Gideon, Manoah, Elijah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in all of those appearances, the Son of God was meeting specific individuals and meeting them at a specific point in their life to meet specific needs that they had. And all of those Christophanies pointed to the greater fulfillment of the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. I believe they pointed to the incarnation, that time in history where Jesus Christ met the greatest need of all humanity, 
The Bible says he came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. The hymn writer said he was born for our salvation. And what a lovely thing it is to consider on this Christmas Eve morning, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. A Christophany was an occasion whenever the Son of God appeared in the form of man, with the appearance of man, but the incarnation was something greater still. He didn't merely come in the form of man. The Son of God came with the very nature of man. He didn't come just with the appearance of man. The Son of God came at the incarnation with the very essence of man. He took to himself a true human body and a reasonable soul. His body was a human body. His soul was a human soul. And yet at the same time, he was God of very God, fully God and fully man. God and man brought together in one person, one person with two distinct natures. And it's a remarkable truth to consider the incarnation. And it's all summed up in this glorious title that we have, not only in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, but away back there in Isaiah 7, 14, his name shall be called Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Jesus Christ was Emmanuel and is Emmanuel. He is God manifest in the flesh. God dwelling or tabernacling amongst men. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And every Christian can say in the truest sense of the name, God is with me. God is with us. God dwells with us and God dwells within us. Emmanuel, God with us. It all really brings to bear upon our hearts and minds today the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the incarnation. And as we have been thinking about some of those Christophanies in the Old Testament, using the same template today to consider the incarnation, the coming of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, context, characteristics, and then the consequences. Consider, first of all, for a few moments, please, the context of his coming. We read the context of his coming here in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke's gospel chapters 1 and 2, as well, or as it says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman made under the law. When the fullness of time was come, and that's just another way of saying at just the right time, God sent forth his son. Or at the perfect time, God sent forth his Son. The Son of God came at just the right time. And after all of these great generations coming and going in Old Testament story, we read in verse 18 of Matthew 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. He came at just the right time. And he came in the right manner. And he came in the right way. And he came for the right reasons. Everything about our God this morning is right. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Son of God came at just the right time. What sort of time did the Lord come at? Well, we could think about the coming and the context of His coming and the timing of His coming spiritually. It's amazing to think that 400 years had come and gone since the Lord had last spoken audibly from heaven to a prophet, and that prophet in turn had brought the word of God to the people. God's servant Malachi was the last prophet to speak in Old Testament times. And again, Malachi spoke very vividly and distinctly about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. The Lord whom you seek shall come suddenly to his temple. And that's a verse that's wide in its application. It is reference to the incarnation, yes. It is reference as well, I believe, to the coming of God at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, and also points to the last days whenever the Lord will come back and his feet shall stand in the Mount of Olives in that day. And Malachi said that whenever he comes, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi. But whenever Malachi closed his prophecy, it would be 400 years before God would speak again with a voice from heaven. And so he came, our Lord Jesus Christ, spiritually at a time of great spiritual darkness. 400 silent, quiet, dark, barren years had passed, and there's nothing said between the Old Testament and New of what took place in those 400 silent years. And then true to form at the right time, whenever the world was dwelling in spiritual darkness, the Son of God came into this world. And the Gospel of Matthew says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 16, the people which sat in darkness have seen a great light. And beloved, this morning we are living in days in many respects of spiritual darkness. The Bible says that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And men do not like to come to the light because the light exposes our darkness. Whenever I was a little boy, I used to love going to my grandmother's house. She had a, a lovely garden that was so well kept. And I used to like to go with a little jam jar and go hooking under rocks and tiles looking for creepy crawlies. Whenever you lifted the, the rocks and the light shone in, those little creepy crawlies would go running and hiding, looking for the darkness. And that's just like us, naturally speaking. We don't like to come to the light, lest our deeds and our darkness should be exposed. But Jesus Christ came into this world at a time of great spiritual darkness. And you're maybe here this morning in this gospel service on the Lord's Day morning of Christmas Eve, and you're dwelling and living in spiritual darkness. I was once in darkness. Now my eyes can see I was lost, but Jesus sought and found me. Oh, what love he offers, oh, what peace he gives. I will sing forevermore he lives. The context of his coming spiritually, time of darkness. What about the context of his coming religiously? You know, there's a great difference between spirituality and religiosity. 
And religiously speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ came to a people. With the exception of a small few, he came to a people who were very, very religious, many of them. But while they were religious, many of them were dry and stale and barren and unbelieving and apostate. He came to a nation. He was born in the nation of Israel, in the city of David, Bethlehem, David's royal city. And of course, he visited oftentimes the great city of Jerusalem and went to the temple there and into the synagogues and other towns and villages round about Jerusalem. But by and large, he came to a people who were unbelieving, a people who were very religious, but a people who were filled with unbelief. He came to his own, John 1.11 says, but his own received him not. The church of his day was Pharisaic. The church of his day was legalistic. The church of his day was filled with rules and regulations and rites and ceremonies. And their religion was so much an outward religion white sepulchers, they had this idea of keeping up appearances and keeping the temple going and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices and going through the same washings and the same feasts and they had added so much to the Word of God and the law of God that they had become dry, arid, barren, stale, irrelevant, fruitless and void of the presence of God until that day whenever the Savior was born, and then a few days later, taken to the temple and presented before the Lord by Mary and by Joseph. And are we not living in a day in this nation of ours where there's a lot of religion, but maybe very little reality, a lot of outward form, a lot of keeping up appearances, especially at this time of the year whenever people will meet together in church services just like this and appropriate portions of Scripture will be read and hymns and carols will be sung and there will be a little bit of talk about Jesus Christ and the rehearsing of the nativity scene and the giving and exchanging of cards and gifts. And then, by and large, people will meet together in homes and they will eat together, they will drink together, they will talk together, They'll watch their favorite shows and television together. They'll exchange gifts and cards and presents and gifts and have wonderful times with their families. But by and large, their hearts are not touched or changed at all by the fact that a Savior came into this world. And is it not true to say that religiously we need a fresh visitation from God and we need our hearts to be revived? And maybe you, we have become very legalistic and very, very sort of traditional in our Christianity. And everything is about keeping up appearances, the outward form of religion, but very little of a real hard experience of God. What was the world like politically whenever the Lord Jesus Christ came to save his people. Politically, the land of Israel was in a very unusual situation. God initially had set them up to be a theocratic state, a theocratic nation, where God would be their God, 
and God's word would be their guide. And they would follow the ways of the Lord and seek unto the Lord and God would be their king. But there came a time whenever they were not content with that and they wanted to be like other nations round about them. And so they cried unto Samuel to bring to them a king and they would anoint a man to be their king so that they could be like all of the nations round about. And Samuel under God warned them of the ultimate consequences of this rash decision that they were making. And at last Saul was anointed king. And for a time there was blessing under David and under Solomon. And then it began to become a, an experience of peaks and troughs until at last whenever Jesus Christ came, you had a wicked man upon the throne by the name of Herod. And then the Roman Empire was in governance as well. And all sorts of strange things were happening in the nation whenever Jesus Christ was born. A godless king. A secular Gentile government. It was a time of political secularism whenever the Son of God came into this world. And we are living, I believe, more and more and more in a day of political secularism here in the West. Whether you think about Europe, you think about Britain, you think about America, we are living in days of political secularism. General William Booth, the founder of what has become known as the Salvation Army, towards the end of the 1800s, made this remarkable statement over 100 years ago, looking at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, General William Booth said, I consider the chief dangers which will confront the coming century will be religion, without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. He said those words over 100 years ago. What would he think if he was looking at Britain now in the 21st century. And that was a lot like the religion of Christ's day, religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, heaven without hell, politics without God. How this world of ours needs Jesus Christ to reign upon the throne of the human heart. We think about the coming of Christ into the world, the context of his coming spiritually, religiously, politically. What was the world like socially whenever the Son of God came into this world? You've only to read the four Gospels to discover what the world was like socially whenever the Savior came. There was no welfare state. There was no benefit system. There was no national health service. The Son of God came into a world that was broken socially. He came into a world of sin and into a world of woe. And so much of his ministry concerns the Son of God sitting in the lower parts of the earth with publicans, with harlots, with lepers, adulterers and adulteresses. 
people who were unclean and defiled, who had made a, a whole mess of their life. And that really summarizes the heart of the saved. You remember the great parable that he told in Luke chapter 14 about a man that made a great supper? And all of the proud, rich, arrogant, religious people made excuses about why they wouldn't come. And then the Savior said in the parable, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind that my house might be filled. That's the heart of the Savior. So often as he went about his duties, he sat down beside the beggars, the poor and the needy, People that the world were passing by. And you've all of the great parables that the Lord told, whether it's the, the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the lost son or the, the story about the, the man outside of Jericho falling among thieves or some of the great instances in the Lord's ministry whenever he, he cleansed the lepers and he delivered the demoniacs and he gave sight to the blind and he, he raised the dead. He came to a world that was broken. And our world today, our world this morning, is hopelessly lost, and we live in a world today that's broken. But whenever my Savior began his earthly ministry, we read about him coming to the town of Nazareth, a town that was despised and entered into their synagogues, and as his custom was, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for it to read, and opened the Word of God at the book of Isaiah, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, sent me to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He came, in other words, friends, to a world that was poor and a world that was needy. And we are all poor and needy. And your greatest need today, if you're not a Christian, is to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, for the Lord to come into your life and into your heart and into your home, the context of His coming. What about the characteristics of His coming? There's so many things that we could say about this. First of all, we could say that His coming was silent. He came without pomp. He came without ceremony. He came without pageantry. As Philip Brooks in his great hymn said, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. There was only a few that were there to see it. Just a few humble shepherds came that night. The Savior was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He came so, so silently. I love the words of St. Augustine who made this remarkable statement. He said, filling the world, he lies in a manger. Filling the world, he lies in a manger. And it's so difficult for us even to comprehend or begin to understand that the omnipresent, eternal Son of God was found there as a babe in a manger, filling the world. He lies in a manger. He came so silently. His coming was not only silent, but his coming as well, of course, was supernatural. The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. The birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise. 
and we go right through to read about Mary, the mother espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. There is the virgin birth. And then his name given as Emmanuel, God with us. And that indicates that his coming was supernatural. He had a supernatural birth. He was born of a virgin. He also had a supernatural being because he was God manifest in the flesh, God with us. Or as Charles Wesley said, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Heal the incarnate deity. His coming was supernatural. His coming was silent. His coming as well was submissive. He said, I didn't come to do mine own will. I came to do the will of him that sent me. I came to do the will of my Father. The Bible says he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he came into this world to serve humanity, to serve his people, but first and foremost to serve with a single eye, his Father in heaven. He came into this world so silently, so supernaturally, and so submissively, ultimately to go to a cross and to pay the price for the sins of his people. Old Donald Barnhouse was a great preacher in America in the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And one occasion, Donald Barnhouse was crossing the Atlantic Ocean on a great ship, and they conducted some Sunday services that morning. And after the services were over, some young students that were on the ship sat with them and they began to talk about the things of God and they began to talk about the nature of the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one young girl couldn't get it into her head. And Donald Barnhouse told a story about something that had happened in his home city. And he told a story about a judge whose son was brought before the court and he was on the charge of driving recklessly and the evidence was brought against him and the son was found guilty. And the judge passed the hardest sentence possible for his son's misdemeanors. And then whenever the court was adjourned, the judge stepped down from his box and paid the fine and full. And that young girl said to Donald Barnhouse, but God in heaven, the judge of all the earth, cannot step down from off the bench and pay the price. To which Mr. Barnhouse replied, you have given to me the best possible illustration of the incarnation. Because that is exactly what happened whenever Jesus Christ came into this world. He stepped down from glory into this world of ours to go to a cross and to pay the price for the sins of his people. His coming as well was not only silent and supernatural and submissive, his coming was specific. He came with a purpose. He came to do certain things. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. His coming, of course, as well was scriptural. He came in fulfillment of the Word of God. The Old Testament Scriptures spoke of the promise of His coming. Right away back there in Genesis chapter 3 at the gates of the Garden of Eden, we have what all theologians have called the proto-evangel. Whenever God said to the serpent that the, the seed of the woman 
would bruise the serpent's head. And in so doing, the seed of the woman's heel would be bruised. And it spoke about Jesus Christ being born of a virgin and going to a cross and suffering and destroying principalities and powers and triumphing over them in it. And right throughout Old Testament Scripture, you've got promise after promise after promise of the coming of the Savior. And so the Lord's coming was scriptural, and He came by way of promise. He also came into this world by way of picture. Old Testament Scripture is filled with types and shadows, whether it's the Lamb that was slain, or the tabernacle, or the priesthood, or the offerings, or the, the ceremonial law. It all pointed to Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled all of the pictures, and all of the shadows, and all of the types, and all of the promises perfectly, hand in glove. He not only came by way of promise and by way of picture, but he also came by way of prophecy. You only have to go through the Old Testament Scriptures and you'll discover there were prophecies about His birth, prophecies about His life, prophecies about His betrayal, prophecies about His ministry, prophecies about His death, prophecies about His resurrection, prophecies about the place of His birth, prophecies about the tribe that He'd be born into, prophecies about His crucifixion, Prophecies about us being sold for 30 pieces of silver. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies fulfilled every jot and tittle in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He also came by way of precept. He said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, that he did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill the law. Every jot and every tittle his active and his perfect obedience, securing for his people a perfect righteousness. His coming was not only silent and supernatural and submissive and specific and scriptural, but his coming was absolutely successful. Isaiah 42, 4 says, He shall not fail nor be discouraged. Dr. Vaughn Roberts said, The cross was not a tragic failure. But the cross was a triumphant rescue. The Son of God's mission was absolutely successful. And that is proved by virtue of His resurrection and His ascension into heaven and His sitting down at the right hand of the majesty and high. The Son of God did and successfully accomplished everything that He set out and intended to do the characteristics of His coming, the context of His coming. But in conclusion, will you consider with me briefly the consequences of His coming? The coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the singular, most significant event in the history of our world. You look there at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, the words that were spoken to the shepherds of Bethlehem you have the immediate consequences of His coming. His coming resulted in joy in heaven. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. 
And then immediately the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which is made known unto us. And the, the gospel for them was unto you as born this day in the city of David, a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And they immediately went, and in immediately doing so, their lives were changed forever. And there's the immediate consequence of his coming. Joy in heaven and sinners on earth repenting. And as you listen to the gospel again this morning, some of you have heard it from your earliest days, from before you can even remember the gospel has been presented to you. But have you ever come and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the immediate consequence of his coming as far as you are concerned this morning can be forgiveness of sins, beholding the Lamb of God, entering into newness of life and entering into a life of witness and testimony and service. The consequences of his coming immediately. Then the consequences of his coming ultimately. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ has transformed the world. His coming has divided history. His coming as well has divided humanity. Untold millions have been changed and rescued and delivered and saved by virtue of the coming of Jesus Christ into our world. What a, a dark world this would be if the Savior had never come. Somebody once said, if you take out the cross, take the cross out of the Bible, and the Bible becomes a very dark book. But because of the coming of our Savior into this world and because of His cross, there's life and there's light, and there's freedom, and there's forgiveness for multitudes of individuals. One old Methodist radio preacher, Ralph Sockman, once said, the hinge of history is on the door of the Bethlehem stable. What a statement. The hymn of history is on the door of a Bethlehem stable. The coming of Jesus Christ into this world of ours is the hinge that turns humanity and brings them, if they trust Jesus Christ, into a place of newness and into a place of hope. What about the consequences of his coming eternally? His coming makes all the difference between heaven and hell. Millions that otherwise would have been lost have been saved and brought to God through the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. Some people say, you know, it's a very presumptuous thing to say that you know you've got eternal life and you know that you're going to heaven. And it certainly would be a very presumptuous and a very foolish thing to say that if an individual was looking inwardly to themselves. But whenever a, a man or a woman or a young person looks out of themselves and looks to Jesus Christ, they can say with surance and with certainty, I know that I've got eternal life. Because my Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The consequences of receiving Christ and the consequences of rejecting Christ, friends, the consequences are eternal. Now, what are you going to do this morning with the gospel message? Pontius Pilate asked that great question, what then shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Some of you are still not converted. 
you've never received Christ as your Savior. Some of you perhaps have no assurance at all. You maybe once made some type of profession, but you're not really living for the Lord this morning at all. I want to challenge you and ask you, will you receive Christ this morning as your Savior, the Savior that came, Emmanuel? Will you be able to leave this meeting today, this Christmas Eve morning service, and say, God is with me? Emmanuel, God with me. But what about those of us today that are Christians? Will we love him with all of our hearts? Will we honor him in our lives? Will we seek first the kingdom of God? Will we worship him and serve him? One day, soon we will see him as he is. But before that day comes, let's really live for him. Let's be like those Bethlehem shepherds who having seen him and worshipped him and trusted him, they went back to their own people and they told everybody that they met in the way this wonderful thing that God had made known unto him. God has made known to us the greatest news that the world could ever receive. Paul says we carry this treasure in earthen vessels. Let a world that's lost and dying know about the Savior. As the old hymn said, go to a world that is dying is perfect salvation to tell.